will be taken from Mark, the 8th chapter. Mark, chapter 8, starting with verse 22. And he came to Bethsaida, and they being, and they being a blind man unto him, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit in on his eyes, he put his hand upon him and asked him if he saw it not. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hand again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. Good morning. I am so glad to be here this morning. I just... <laughs> I can't imagine being more excited being anywhere than I have been this morning. I've been getting hugs and giving hugs. Uh, last time I stood here, I gave away a daughter and got a son-in-law. So I've got a lot of different emotions going on right now. But let me just tell you how much I love you very much. Um, I am part of Mount Juliet. I'm, I'm part of this body here. And I want you to know a little bit about the work that you're doing in Memphis. Uh, I'm at Harding's Graduate School of Religion now. I've got six more classes to go, one more year. Uh, Lord willing and to graduate and I've already been doing hundreds of hours of counseling with folks right now I'm working with inner-city uh, homeless folks people who have had a year year and a half of homelessness chronically unemployed uh, about as hopeless outlook on their life as, as you can get and God's just been he's been blessing me with that work and blessing those folks through me and I want you to know you're you're at the back of this you know you're in that supply chain if it weren't for what you're doing I couldn't be doing what I'm doing God is glorified in the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, and I thank God for every time I think of you. Have you ever heard a sermon on this passage of Scripture before? If you have, please raise your hand. Let's see three or four, five hands. Most everybody's, it's not a passage of Scripture we hear a lot about. None of the other gospel writers record this story. Uh, it's kind of a strange little story. I remember when I was 14, on uh, watching Channel 17 on my little black and white TV in my room, and I saw this faith healer man, Ernest Angley, if I said his name correctly. And, uh, you know, I was just looking for the, the way to prove he was, he was a fake. And uh, I, I got my chance. This little man walked out, and he walked, he walked like this. He had one leg shorter than the other. And the, the preacher had him walk down. He walked down through there, and he was just limping this way. And, and uh, of course, the preacher got said all these words. And the way he would do his healing is he would take uh, two men and have them stand behind him, and he'd just smack him on the forehead, and he'd say, Be healed! And the guy would fall back, and so he, didn't, he had him like, make a test run. And the guy goes down through there, and he's still limping. And I thought, There you go. Well, he came back, and of course he healed him again. And I thought, That's it. See, we got him now, because Jesus never did anything twice. He did it right the first time, right? I always healed him right the first time. I got him. And I don't know how many years it was before somehow I ran across this story. And uh, Jesus took, took him twice to get this healed, this man healed. Just couldn't quite get it right the first time. 
And uh, it's one of those stories that kind of let roll around, my, roll around in my head, but I just let it go. I can't explain it. You know, a lot of commentaries don't have a lot to say about it. A lot of conjecture. I want to make us think this morning. I think there might be something to this story. I think it's a very powerful story. I mean, it's there for a reason. It's just not some little weird little tale that just shows up in the middle of Mark's gospel. What I want us to do is we won't have time to do all this. I want to get you hungry. I want to make you hungry and thirsty to figure out what this is for yourself. Let me just give you some ideas. And please don't take my word for gospel. You check it out for yourself. See what you think about this. Uh, before I read this text again, I want to tell you about two months ago, I went to a men's retreat. I had the opportunity to speak. It was in Atlanta, just about an hour past Atlanta. I wear glasses, and uh, if, when I take my glasses off, uh, there's twice as many people in here as there are before I took them off. If you've got astigmatism, you know what I'm talking about, right? So uh, I had a nice pair of glasses. Uh, my favorite pair of glasses are very lightweight, nothing but lenses and a couple pieces of wire. And I, before I left on the trip, I'm thinking, you know, we're going to do some fishing down there. This is a fishing retreat. Uh, I ought to take my spare pair of glasses with me. I got so busy, never mind. Anyway, got down there Friday afternoon, first day, on a boat with a guy who thinks it's a rocket and he takes off in it and I'm trying to hold everything down and guess what happens? My glasses are just sucked right off my head. They don't float. Um, all I could think of was, you know, I knew this was going to happen. I knew it was, I thought about it ahead of time and I knew it was going to happen. So I spent all day Friday fishing with no glasses. I caught more fish than I've ever caught in my entire life. <laughs> They were big. I mean, there was like two of them at a time on the line. <laughs> it was great. I, I, go fishing without your glasses. It's the best way to catch them. Uh, Friday night and Saturday did Devo. Sunday morning I had to preach. Had to preach without my glasses. Now listen, you think if I can't see you out there, wait till I take them off and look at this. And I, I had a sermon all prepared, but I couldn't read my notes. And all I could think about was this passage of Scripture right here about the man who, who could see a little bit. Look, you know, people look like trees walking, but he just couldn't really see clearly. See, because I had to drive home from Atlanta without my glasses. And it's pretty good on the interstate, not too bad. You just kind of listen for the sounds beside of you, you know. But about 6 o'clock, 6.30, it was starting to get a little dark, and I was about 20 miles from uh, uh, I-40 where it dumps you, uh, I-24 dumps you out on I-40. Well, they're doing construction there. There's a bunch of little orange blotches all over my, my viewfinder. I had a real hard time maneuvering in there to find that exit. I was scared to death. I made it to a Wendy's at 109, stopped and called my mom. Mom, you need to come get me. Nobody home. I said, it was dark now, and there were four headlights coming at me in my lane. And I was really scared. I mean, it was a, a very scary experience. And last night driving up, I had another kind of experience. I saw three cars that were overturned, two in the middle of the interstate, one in the median, because it was just pouring rain last night. People driving along 70 miles an hour, and it's pouring rain, thinking that they can see until something pops up and happens, and then they can't see, and the next thing you know, uh, they, they risk their life. Let's keep those stories in mind as we, as we read this again, because Mark's got a purpose for telling this story. And you know, the gospel's not about John, me, it's, it's about Jesus. Mark tells the gospel to tell about Jesus. He, Jesus comes to Bethsaida, and they bring him a blind man to him, and uh, they beg him to touch him. Now, this is not one of those people who've been blind from birth, most likely, because what? He talks about seeing men like trees. Well, if you've been blind, you don't know what a tree looks like. So somewhere in these past, he must have been able to see something. Anyway, 
They take the blind man by the hand. Jesus takes him outside of town. He spits in his eyes. Ugh. And he puts his hands on him, and he asks him if he can see anything. And he says, I see men like trees walking. Well, he puts his hands on his eyes again, and he makes him look up. And he was restored. He saw everyone clearly. But he tells him, don't, don't tell anybody about this. Shh, keep it a secret. You ever notice in the Gospels, a lot of times, Jesus is saying, he's doing his great work, and he says, shh, don't say anything about it. Keep it quiet. You know, we explain that away, and we got a good answer for it. He didn't want it, his fame to get too... Um, he didn't want to, want to become too famous too quickly because people would just, they would come for the miracles, not for the message. But why this passage, why in this book, why in this place, and why does Mark pick it, of all people? Why don't John pick up on it, or Matthew, or Luke? Let's just look at Mark, what he's written so far. I want you to think about this passage in the next few verses where Peter confesses Jesus as being kind of like the spine on this Bible, or a hinge, better yet, on a, on a door. You've got one side, which is a door on the left side. This is like a before. You've got another door on this side, which is like an after. And there's this hinge that hinges those two pieces together that makes a transition. It takes us from before to after. You know, the man was blind before Jesus came to him. And after he can see. So we got the before and after in, in mind. If you look back at Mark's gospel, Mark is trying to tell us who Jesus is. Now, you know, we're 2,000 years removed. We know who Jesus is, right? In fact, we sit back, at least I do sometimes, and I think about those disciples and apostles and go, man, what is it with you guys? You can't get this. I mean, you walked with him. You saw him raise a dead woman. You saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. You saw him turn water into wine. If, hey, if I saw that, I'd be knowing who this guy is, right? That's what we're thinking today. These are people who lived with Jesus. They slept in the same house with Jesus. They ate with him. And yet they didn't get it. So I need to be careful 2,000 years removed that I start judging them and saying how they just must have not, they must be stupid. They must just be dense. They must be blind. They just can't see. Look at what Mark says. The very first verse of his gospel says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets. He starts right off the bat telling everybody, hey, Jesus is the Son of God. There's prophets who write about the messenger that's going to come prepare the way for him. We have the advantage as modern-day modern readers to know who Jesus was. Look at verse 11. A voice comes down from heaven after Jesus is baptized and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God knows who Jesus is. In fact, he sent him here. Okay? Uh, Satan tempts Jesus, verses 12 and 13. He begins his ministry in Galilee, and he calls his disciples to follow after him. And uh, his disciples now are not the first ones that say, I know Jesus. They just follow after him. Now, they'll say they know him. But this is really interesting. Look at this. Look, look at what we see about Jesus in verse uh, 23. Uh, he comes into Capernaum to the Sabbath day. He teaches there. And these people in verse 22 are astonished at his teaching because he teaches like somebody who knows what he's talking about. He's got authority, not like the scribes. Now, there was a man in their synagogue who had this unclean spirit, and he was crying out, saying, Let us alone. What do we got to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Jesus has 
uh, power over the demons. The demons know who Jesus is. God the Father knows who Jesus is. Mark knows who Jesus is. Look at verse 27. After he, after he gets this demon out of this man, they're all amazed. Who's all amazed? Well, the people in the synagogue, I'm sure, but the disciples are there. They can't believe it. Who is this? What is this? What's this new doctrine? What kind of authority can he command unclean spirits about, uh, come out and they obey him? Can you see me now? You know, the cell phone commercial back then, might have, with low technology, would have been, can you see me now? Instead of, can you hear me now? Jesus is going to be asking, can you see me now? Do you know who I am? I'm telling you who I am, but can you see me now? The demons say, yes, we can see you. I know exactly who you are. You're God's holy one, aren't you? You're going to, are you going to kill me and you're going to wipe me out now? Second thing, not only do demons know who Jesus is, but disease knows who Jesus is. Look at uh, verse 29, Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Jesus takes her by the hand, verse 31, lifts her up, and immediately she loses his fever, and she serves him. We can read lots of more places. Over in uh, verse 40, there's a leper comes to Jesus. Jesus has power over disease. Disease answers to him. and knows who he is. Chapter 2, he heals a man who's, who's paralyzed and forgives him of sin. In verse 7, these people start saying, who is this man that can forgive sins? Who is this man that can do that? God is the only one that can do that. Verse 12, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. They still don't know who Jesus is. They just know, wow, this is awesome what we're looking at. Verse 28 of chapter 2, Jesus says himself who he is. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Son of Man. I wish we could talk about Son of Man. That's a really interesting term. When Jesus talks about himself, he uses that term more than anything. Very interesting term. Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see me now? Can you see me now? Do you know who I am? He goes on to heal some more in chapter 3. A uh, big multitude uh, starts to follow after him. We see the naming of the 12 apostles. But look down at verse 11 of chapter 3. Uh, these, again, unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they would fall down before him and cry out saying, you're the son of God. And he tells them, don't say anything about it. Jesus has power over demons who know who he is, over disease which knows who he is, even disasters. I like this. I was on a cruise ship one time, and I wish, I wish Jesus had been there, really with me because it was bad water bad water look in uh, chapter 4 about verse 35 he's explaining things to his disciples in parables and uh let me just make a footnote here if you have a time sometime turn back to, to matthew chapter 13 about verse 13 and you'll see that jesus starts in matthew's gospel talking about how, why i'm talking in parables well it's because people have eyes to see but they can't see and they have ears to hear but they can't hear and he's quoting from Isaiah 6. And if you flip back to Isaiah 6, it's, it's really weird. Listen to this. This is the, uh, you know, when Isaiah sees the presence of God and the, and the angel brings the coal and puts it to his lips, he says, I'm unclean. God's like, Who's gonna, who am I going to send? He says, here I am, send me. Here's what he says next. Verse 9. Go tell the people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes, lest they hear with their ears, lest they understand with their heart and return and be healed. 
And, God said, and uh, I said, how long, Lord? Until the cities are laid waste without anybody living in them, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. God says here to Isaiah, go tell everybody, just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep on going. Doesn't that sound weird? Why would Jesus pick up on that? You'd think he would come tell us, open up your eyes, listen, hear me, see me. Are you confused yet? Boy, I was. I'm still not sure I'm not still confused about it. And Mark's bringing in all this imagery of, of Jesus and his power and who he is. He has power over the waves. Uh, back to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. We see the story about how the disciples get really afraid because these, these great waves and the winds uh, swell up. He calms them, verse 39, peace be still. Verse 40, why is it that you are fearful? Why is it you have no faith? That's an important statement. They fear exceedingly and say to one another, these are disciples now, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? These are the men who quit their jobs, who follow Jesus, who know who he is, who see him, but they can't see. Again, in verse uh, 36 of chapter 5, he tells them, don't be afraid, just believe. The key in Mark's gospel, if we understand, one of the keys is Jesus is calling us to two things. We're going to follow two things, one of two things. We're either going to follow fear or we're going to follow faith. That's our choice. And the opposite of fear is faith. The opposite of faith is having fear in your life. When Jesus gets over down uh, through Mark's gospel, um, let's look at uh, back to verse... Well, chapter 8, to set the scene up of what's coming on, he feeds 4,000 hungry people, and of course the disciples are looking around and saying, where are you going to get that kind of food? There's no McDonald's around here, right? There's no drive-through. How are we going to do this? And he takes what they have, and, he's, and he uh, takes the, the seven loaves, and he spreads it all out with these few fishes, and then have all this, these baskets of leftovers. And he starts talking about the leaven of Herod, verse 13. And the, the disciples get in a boat, they forget, verse 14, to take bread. Now, they're in a little boat with Jesus. <laughs> They've just seen him feed 4,000 people. They get in the boat. We forgot our lunchbox. Oh, we got to go back. What are we going to do? We're going to starve to death. Jesus sees this, and he says, What are you reason that you have no bread? Don't you understand? Is your, is your heart still hardened? Having eyes? Do you not see? What's he mean there? I mean, didn't you just see what I did? Don't you see what God does in our lives? He provides this food out of nothing. How many baskets did you take up? Twelve. That's what I'm thinking. You know, these, these guys are not idiots. They're not idiots. These men, if these were even twelve, I'm, does it say twelve? It just says the disciples. There may have been some more on the boat with him. I don't know. These, these are people that, because of their faith, you and I have faith. Without them, I don't know what it would have continued. They're part of God's plan. And yet they were so close to Jesus they couldn't see the forest for the trees. How is it that you don't understand, verse 21, and then boom, here's, this, here's our text right in the middle of this. Here we are. Let's look at what's after it. That's the before. Before we see Jesus as a man, um, I mean, who do disciples think he was? He's the guy that's going to bring the sword and nuclear weapons, going to blow up the Romans, right? Give us our rule back. Even in Acts chapter 1, the last question they want to ask him is, God, are you going to give us the kingdom now? 
You want to give it back to Israel now? When James and John come to Jesus, they want to be like right-hand, left-hand men. Now we talk about who's the greatest? Who's first? They, they, they see Jesus before as somebody who has power over death, over demons, over disasters, over disease. That's who Jesus is. I can see that. And that's true. Yes, that's true. Let's look at the after picture, though. I would count verse 27 through 30 as part of the hinge, but you do with it what you will. This is where Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, who do you say I am? Well, you might be John the Baptist when people say, Elijah. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? I want to know who you, who you see. And, of course, Peter stands up and says, well, you're the Christ. I can see. Don't tell anybody about it. And then we start seeing a different, it's almost like flipping the light switch on. It's like this, disciples were blind before, and then Jesus comes along. They can see something. They can see men walking like trees, but now Jesus is going to flip the light on for them and let them, let them see the real truth. It's not about power, folks. It's not about all that healing and casting out demons. That's not the picture. Here's the picture. Here's what you need to see clearly. He begins one of three times to talk about his death and what's going to happen to him immediately after this. He's going to be, uh, verse 31, rejected by elders, chief priests, the scribes. He's going to be killed, and after three days, he's going to rise again. He spoke this word openly. It's no more of this in the dark. Let's not talk about it stuff. Let's, let's, let's get this out in the open. Of course, you know what Peter does. Lord, you can't do this. You've got to be king, and if you're dead, you can't be king. Starts rebuking him. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Watch this. After each time that Jesus talks about his death and what's going to happen to him, there's a lesson after, after it. There's a lesson. They're all connected. And this is true in the other Gospels, too. The first thing he does, he calls everybody to him. He says, if you want to follow me, you've got to do what? You've got to be powerful. You've got to have disease. Built to hear disease. You've got to be able to cast out demons. You've got to be able to raise people from the dead. That's what you've got to have to follow me because that's what I'm doing. No. It says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, because whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do they get it? Do they get it? Do they see? Or is this something like a man walking with a tree, a kind of a blurry vision? They see in chapter 9, at least three of them do, Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah. Glorious mountaintop experience. And after that, they come down and having a little problem with some disciples not able to cast out demons, a power issue again. So Jesus has to pick it up and do it for them. And look, again in verse 30 of chapter 9, number 2, he predicts his death again. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he's killed, he rises the third day. But they didn't understand that this time they're afraid to ask. So he knows it, verse 33. What is it that you were kind of arguing about on the way? They didn't say anything. They were wanting to know who's going to be the greatest. It's a power thing again, right? If anybody wants to be first, he'll be last of all and servant of all. See the message again? It's not about Jesus coming and bringing all this, this power thing with him, control over demons, death, disasters, and, and disease. It's about coming and laying your life down. I'm going to Jerusalem back here, and if 
you want to go, this is the way that you're going to get there. Then he flips over uh, chapter 10, verse 32. They're on the road going to Jerusalem. Jesus was before, before them. They were amazed. As, as they followed, they were afraid. Now notice, they were choosing fear over faith. He took the 12 aside and he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Look, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man's going to be betrayed to the chief priests, the scribes. They're going to condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They'll mock him and scourge him. They'll spit on him. They'll kill him. And the third day arise again. You know, third time's a charm, right? Third time they'll get it. Then James and John come by. Teacher, uh, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Well, would you give us that one would sit on your right, one on your left? <laughs> come on, guys. This is like the third time. What do, what do you think Jesus is feeling like? And we go on and read the rest of the gospel. We, we see him take his three his three closest friends in the garden to pray. Y'all stay and pray with me, and they can't even stay awake. They, they still don't get it. And you've seen the pictures. You may have seen the passion. You for sure read the book. What happens? Does Jesus go out in a blaze of glory? Does he exercise all that power and that control that he was doing so well with in the left-hand side of our before book? No. On the other side of the hinge is a different picture of who Jesus is. He's a suffering servant. He's a man who came and had everything in his hand, everything, who said, I have control of everything. I give it to my Father, and I'm now empty. And in the middle of this book is this little passage of Scripture that we see. I'm not a Bible scholar, but you've got to wonder. Doesn't this work out real neat for the way Mark's trying to picture his gospel and the picture of Jesus? Don't you see that the disciples, they didn't get this all in one fell swoop. They didn't get it in really two fell swoops. <laughs> they, they, they're blind in darkness before the, the, the master comes. They, he calls them and says, come on, leave your nets and come follow me. Well, they, they begin to start seeing, but they can't see very clearly. It's like driving down Interstate 24 with astigmatism with your glasses off. You can kind of tell where you're going, but hope nobody gets in your way. You know, I can see you, but you look, I don't think anybody looks like a tree right now. <laughs> and then Jesus brings them along. They go through a really hard time in their life, don't they? A very hard time. They pretty much almost look like they lose their faith. And there he is. Can you see him now? Maybe a better question would be, do you, th do you see Jesus? Well, if I ask you that, you might look around and say, well, okay, I see him in over here. I see him in the church. I see him in good works. I see him in um, the, the word. I'm not talking about that. That's I want to get down on a personal level with you about who, who do you see in the mirror? When you look in the mirror, who do you see? Do you see Jesus? Now follow with me just a second. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. This is another one of those passages I've always thought about. I think I had it all figured out. <laughs> one thing about school, the more you study the God's Word, the more you figure out you don't know. 
<laughs> the less, I, the less I, I know for sure, uh, which can be very scary if you're a person who has to know and has to have control. Uh, it, can be very, it can be very liberating if you don't have to know. They can just leave it in God's hands and know that there's a lesson there, and it can be a, a refreshing lesson, but I don't have to have all the answers. I know who does have the answers. 1 Corinthians 13, you know this chapter. It's the love chapter. And it talks about uh, if you don't do everything, if you basically, basically if you do anything without love in your heart, you get what? Big goose egg. doesn't give you anything. Love never fails. Look down at verse 8. But where there's prophecies, they'll fail. Where there's tongues, they'll stop. Where there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. See, we know in part. We prophesy in part. But when that which is complete is come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I understood like a child. I thought like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Listen to this verse here. See, right now we see like in a mirror very dimly. But then we're going to see face to face. I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. There's three things, faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. I've often taken this passage to mean that Paul's purpose of writing it was to tell us that there won't be any prophecies. You know, when the Bible comes, that does away with the prophetic gifts and the speaking in tongues. I'm not going to argue with that. But I, I don't know that that's what Paul's trying to teach us here about love. I mean, emphasis is on love, right? The entire chapter is all about love. When you think about looking in the mirror and you, see, and you think about seeing something dimly, what do you see when you look into a mirror? What do you see when you look in the mirror? Well, you know, it depends on which way the mirror is kind of facing, but if you look squarely into a mirror, what do you see? You see a reflection of who you are, right? You see yourself. Now, if you look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about the uh, about chapter 3. He's talking about the old law and the new law. He's got this kind of a veiled look or dim kind of mirror perspective again. Listen to what Paul says here. Uh, look at verse 15, 2 Corinthians 3. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. They can't see. When they look at the law, it's like they got a, something in front of them. It's like they took their glasses off. <laughs> it's like trying to read with your glasses off. You think you see words. You think you know what they mean. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Oh, excuse me, verse 16. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. Nevertheless, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. you catch that? While we look in the mirror, and if we flip over to James, you know what it is, looking in the perfect law of liberty. As we look in God's Word, as we look in the mirror of God's Word, what do we see? We start out seeing... Me. <laughs> I see John. I see all my imperfections. I see how good I think I look or how ugly you think I look. And I see what I, what I want to see. And as I take that veil away, as, as God takes that veil away, as Jesus puts his hands on my eyes again and takes away that veil, what do I start seeing in the mirror? I should look in the mirror and I can say, I, you know what? I see Jesus there. That looks like Jesus in that mirror. Can you see me now? 
I don't, it's not about seeing him in the book. It's not about seeing him in the church. It's about seeing him in the mirror. Uh. You know, isn't that what Peter had to come up with? <laughs> isn't that what the disciples struggled with, was seeing Jesus in the mirror? Interesting little story, right in the middle of Mark's gospel. Where are you in your, in your walk with Christ? You know, Satan would just love, you ever read the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis? It's a neat little book. Uh, I want to close with a, I won't go there, I want to close with an illustration. Um, Bill Fry uh, was a teacher at Col University of Colorado in uh, 1950. He had a young man that he mentored. His name was John. John was blind. He was blinded in an accident when he was a teenager, so he hadn't seen before. When John became blind, uh, he was telling Bill, you know, I, was, I lost all my purpose in living. Everything just went to pot. I didn't want to get up. Literally, my whole world was dark. My heart was dark. I had no purpose in life. And Bill said, well, you, you're pretty energetic now. What happened? He said, well, one day my dad came home. And he got sick of me laying around in my own self-pity after about a couple years. And he said, son, you know, it's getting cold. Wintertime's approaching. And we're going to have to get our house ready for winter. So I need you to go in the garage and get all the storm windows out and get him up on the house, and I want it done before I get home tonight. So he just turned and walked out the door. John said, I'm so mad. I'm so mad. Don't you know I'm blind? I can't do that. You feel good when I get up on that ladder and fall off, break my neck? Then you'll be, then you'll be happy, won't you? He said, something made me go out there and do it, just out of spite. He goes out, and it took him the whole day. He, he wandered in the garage, felt around, found the windows, found the, the screwdriver's tools and all, got the ladder out and put those windows up. And he said, you know, it was not till many, many years later that I found out my dad was no more than four or five feet away from me the whole time I did that. He was blind, but his dad was right there going to catch him if he fell. God is right here ready to catch us. He's right here this morning. He's wanting to catch you. He wants you to come to him. It's not going to be an overnight thing. You may see it in a couple of stages. But you'll eventually start, it'll start clearing up. When I came back from my trip, they gave me a set of contact lenses to wear. It wasn't my prescription, which didn't help a whole lot. I was clawing on my eyeballs the whole time because they were bothering me. But it was still better than what I had. It took me two weeks to get my glasses straightened out. I saw in steps. This made very good sense to me when it happened. I'm very thankful for my, my vision now. I can see clearly now, like the psalm says. The question is, can I see Jesus in the mirror? If you can't, listen, join the crowd. We're all looking. Let's just look together. There's a need we can help you with. We can encourage you any way to walk from blindness into light. Let Jesus do that for you. Let's stand together and sing a song of encouragement.